Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. This is a very special episode for me. Recently, my wife Debbie and I had the opportunity to spend some time with Don Rosenthal and his wife Martha at their idyllic farmhouse in rural Vermont. Don and Martha have been counseling couples in the art of relationship for 30 years and have a wealth of wisdom to share. The weekend we spent with them affected me very deeply and reaffirmed my belief that a committed relationship is perhaps the most potent path for spiritual and personal development. In a marriage, we have the possibility to reach the highest states of unconditional love and unity, and also to examine the aspects of our personality that are close to giving and receiving love unconditionally. Our partner is a mirror that will show us all of the aspects of ourself that are still unconscious and close to giving and receiving love, if only we have the courage to look. Even though I live an examined life and try to be as conscious and loving as I can, there are still wounded parts of me that are so well defended that I can't see them myself. As you'll hear, I begin our conversation by telling Don that being with him is like being with ayahuasca. Because, like ayahuasca, he helped me to see some of the places where I was still close to giving and receiving love. The observations he made as he watched Debbie and I relate were often painful for me to accept, but he offered his medicine gently and with great compassion, which helped me to take it in. And I'm sure it will take some time to fully integrate everything I learned on that weekend with Don and Martha. And I'm grateful that he was willing to sit down and record a conversation with me. Don is now in his early 80s and is dealing with some serious health problems, but his spirit remains vital and his intellect sharp. 
He and Martha now spend the winters in California, where they lead workshops and offer individual and couples counseling. So if you're on the West Coast, I highly recommend spending time with these two precious elders while they're still traveling. And if you're on the East Coast, then you can find Don and Martha at their beautiful 200-year-old home nestled in the rolling hills of Vermont during the summer and fall months. The music you'll hear leading into our talk is Don playing the piano as Debbie and Martha prepare the table for our lunch. And despite the Parkinson's disease, which has made playing more difficult for Don, I think you can still hear the vitality and joy come through. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Don Rosenthal on The Medicine Path. Well, I'll try. teaching engagements and uh, where I was thinking about how we're going to begin what we're going to start out by saying I kind of run into that when uh, having these conversations too Um, but maybe I'll just start by saying that uh, been spending time at your beautiful home in rural Vermont amongst the rolling green hills and uh, being here with my wife has been really special. Uh, and I feel like hanging out with you is kind of like being with ayahuasca in that you're helping to illuminate a lot of things for us, a lot of our uh, patterns of relating to one another that feels incredibly helpful. And uh, so I just want to start by expressing some gratitude for that and for you offering your time and presence with us. You're welcome. So I think uh, maybe we'll start, if you could talk a little bit about how you began working with couples and helping them relate better to each other. Well, I've been with Martha. 48 years, and at the beginning, the first few years, we just lived in a fairly remote cabin, going into town once a week for supplies, and living a quiet, stress-free life in a very beautiful place, and um, we got along pretty well, but then after a few years, it was time to turn the page. We'd been reading the same page over and over. And so we moved out to the Bay Area, San Francisco area, to a little seacoast town north of San Francisco called Bolinas. And we lived there for a while. And there, there was the stress of keeping it together, making a living. It was much harder 
to do that there than in Alaska. And we started hitting problems that we weren't skilled enough to deal with well in our marriage. So we went downhill. We went down a predictable spiral and um, came very close to splitting up. And we didn't split up. We decided to work it out. And in the process of working it out, we learned a lot. I did go back to school and get a master's degree in psychology. And, you know, it was a therapy training institute. And I trained for therapy. I mean, I don't call myself a therapist because I, I put more emphasis on what do I do now with what's there rather than how did I get here. And not that there is an importance in that. So um, I graduated the school and I started working with people. And just after a while, Martha and I realized we could give a workshop and what we've learned about being a couple. And we're still learning to this day. It's like an art, the art of relating intimately that you never master completely but you can get better at. Hmm. What do you what are some of the things that or most common things that people come to you with that they're struggling with within their relationship? Well, I'd say there's this one disease of relationship that manifests in a million forms and it has different levels of intensity in different stages. But the disease is called resentment. And when one person resents, they show it. And so pretty soon the other person joins them in resenting. And if it isn't handled skillfully, it bounces back and forth, getting stronger all the time. And it's like the plaque in the arteries. It can impede the flow of um, nourishment and cause a heart attack or a stroke. And resentment is like that. Mm. And do you find that... Um is there any, is there times when, is resentment ever justified? Resentment means closing the heart. Now I ask a question of people who have children. Does your child deserve love independent of how well they behave or do they only deserve love when they behave the way you wish? And pretty much everybody says they deserve it always. Then the next question, do all God's children, if you like, deserve the same, or do some deserve more love and some less? Well, it would seem they all deserve the same. If a child deserves love independent of his behavior, unconditionally, then I do too. And if I deserve love, then if someone closes their heart to me because I've done something they didn't like, I'm getting something I don't deserve. Mm. So I think if if we see that about our partner, that they deserve love independent of whether they behave well, then so I'm not able to love them all the time, but it means when, I'm, when my heart is closed to them, I'm giving them something they don't deserve. Mm. Yeah, you said something um, when we were having breakfast about saying no to the behavior while saying yes to the being. Oh, yeah. My, my 13-year-old son says, Papa, I really want to go to Disneyland alone with a friend. And 
I can say no harshly. What are you kidding? You're way too young. What gave you that idea? Um, or I could say to him, boy, I could imagine that would really, really be fun. And I can see why you ask, because in many ways you're quite mature. And I can see why you think I might let you. I'm not comfortable quite yet. Ask me in another couple of years. But I hope it'll happen one day. Mm. And I'm saying yes to his being while saying no to his request. And it's not hard with my kid, but I want to be able to do that with my partner and other people. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the ways that we can help to, uh, like you said, decalcify this, the feeling of resentment that we bring into our relationships? And, and do you think that um, something that is something that we bring into relationships, it's like a pre-existing condition? Oh, I think the pre-existing condition is anger, stored anger. Might be towards my father, mother, life, caretakers, school kids who bullied me, who knows. But that can be, it exacerbate all my negative feelings, which hook into them. But what I'm really interested in is adopting a healthy attitude that will serve me, that says, the truth is I do close my heart and judge my partner, and I would like not to. I'm not justifying myself for doing it, but I'm also not going into guilt that I do it. I'm really open to being shown how to deal with that in a healthy way. And there's several branches to that tree. One branch is, I want to know when I'm expressing this negativity so I can catch it and stop. Two, I want to... Um, learn how to work within so I interpret my partner's behavior differently. The reason I get resentful is not because of what they do, but it's how my mind interprets what they do as a real threat to my being. And I want to find out if that's really so. Mm. And so do we enlist our partner's help in um, identifying these times when we are bringing uh, undeserved resentment into the situation? If you have a good relationship and you have the communicational skills to override defensiveness and really be heard, then I think you can work together. If I'm feeling a certain quality coming from you, I just say, um, Brian, it's happening. And I don't go into a long thing about it. And if you see me saying that, you can assume I might be picking up on some quality that bears consciousness right now. Mm. Now, you spent some time uh, with the teacher, J. Krishnamurti, back in the day. Did your time with him affect or influence the way that you work with couples? That, <clears throat> that was um, over 50 years ago. And he was my first person that I could let in as a real teacher. And um, I, I took what he said seriously, and I, what I really learned from was the observations I made with him sort of pointing how to look. Mm -hmm. And I realized a great deal about how when there was noise, outer and inner noise, I couldn't 
hear, see, feel, understand very well. So there had to be a kind of moving, movement towards quiet and calm inside in order to be able to see clearly what was going on. So he taught me how to look. Mm, yeah, that's why I asked because there does seem to be that, like it's something that I hear him continually point to in his teachings is just that observing, observing uh, the tendencies of our own mind and trying to investigate to the source of these tendencies. He also said, don't take anything or anyone as an authority in spiritual matters. And I was in alignment with that. So is there a way that you found uh, helps to cultivate a sense of inner space so that you can see things more clearly? What's been said, in order to do what's difficult, it doesn't hurt to start by learning what's easy. So what I find is there are certain circumstances where if, if I'm in a quiet place and there isn't a lot of blaring radio or TV or computer and um, I don't do a whole lot of escaping into mindless entertainment, meaningless conversation and I eat well and I exercise and I get enough rest and handle the basics then I'm more likely to create a consciousness that has energy behind it but's quiet, which is a good kind of con consciousness if I wish to be um, conscious and aware in my life. If I'm either you know, high energy and agitated, I tend to get sucked up in my thoughts. And if I'm low energy, I'm dull, the way you feel after eating too much then I just don't have the focus to stay with what's going on. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that we can go a long way toward creating a sense of inner sensitivity and quietude just by how we set up our external circumstances. Our total diet. Yeah, total diet. Yeah. And I also think I will see a lot more in myself if I know for certain that I'm not going to pass judgment on what I see. I call evaluating a healthy product process. This is good for what I want. This doesn't serve me if I'm wanting that. Um, that's evaluation and that's healthy. Judgment is when evaluation becomes and someone is bad for not doing it right and doesn't deserve love. So I close my heart. That's judgment. and. That the fact that I may be judged by me prevents me from seeing a great deal of what I'm doing. Mm. Seems to be a bit of a conundrum um, because some of the people that I talk to, in fact, I, maybe a majority of them, have a hard time identifying what it is that they really want and what it is that's really good for them. And so I'm wondering without already having that kind of clarity and inward focus and connection, um, how can we kind of establish the goal of what we want and what we need in life? Well, one thing is, take a look in the world at some of the distasteful things that go on. War and violence, starvation and hunger, economic inequality and greed, exploitation, prejudice, violence in the home, um, unfair legal system, lousy education system. 
none of that would be true in the presence of love. And I realize the problem is a problem of consciousness in the human race, that our consciousness is ill, if you like. And so what I really want is a consciousness that's free from fear. Fear has its place if my body's in immediate danger. That's what it's for. But most of the fear we feel isn't that. It's, a pers- it's an interpretation that I'm not safe because. And I think to, to just have as a temporary goal just what will my consciousness be like if I'm free it from some of the limitations and restrictions that are now imposing it. And some people have had moments here and there in their life with or without sacred medicines where they've had a few minutes where they were without fear and everything was wonderful and there was love prevailing and everything was okay. And sometimes people have a memory of such states and that memory can serve them if it's accompanied by a sense of rightness that they were seeing truly and rightly at that time because they can take their stand there. Yeah. I sometimes call that the taste of freedom, and I think it's something that people feel, like you said, at at one time or another, and a lot of times maybe it's when we're in nature, and um, it's like this idea that we're never in conflict with the tree or with the ocean or with the mountain, and that can give us a taste of what we could be like in relationship to other humans. Or with an animal or pet, too, I find brings out that kind of quality with people of just unconditional love and acceptance. Yeah, it's because dogs don't say, you've been bad, so I won't love you. And um, so we, we tend with dogs to show them our affection unconditionally. And, um, of course, a lot of married people who are married to someone who has a dog that they love start feeling poorly towards the dog because they see their partner relating to the dog so much more unconditionally, lovingly. Yeah, they become resentful of the dog. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. So... um, you were you spent time with Krishnamurti, uh, and you were working with people. And I know at some point you started to work with uh, different sacred medicines with people. When did that come into your work? Was that through your personal exploration, and then maybe experimenting, integrating that into your counseling work, or what came first? Well, the, the, we're talking about some that were not illegal because they hadn't been made illegal. Right. And some that really helped open the heart. And I, I happened to live near San Francisco, so that was like the center of gravity of where it was being used. And the people I knew were in touch with it before it became out there in the world. And so I tried it out and I saw its great potential for couples as well as individual work. And I, I gave it to a few people, and I started making use of it as the technology of therapy for the future, which I still believe it is. And um, uh, 
I had to stop doing it for a long time because I was afraid of being illegal. And then after a point, all things change. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Because I know, like, Krishnamurti is, um, he kind of comes down on, on using any substances and... He does. Fortunately, I was not a blind follower of everything he said. I think he, he could be wrong, and I think he was. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that, like, these substances that we're talking about, um, help with the process that he actually describes of uh, seeing things clearly and, and from a different perspective than we're used to seeing things and that can be really freeing and liberating. It can. Now, when you're working with people using uh, substances, are you actively engaging with them or are you uh, just more holding space for them in the inward journey? No, I'm not one of these people who lets people discover things for themselves. I had a friend who was, had problems and his therapist was always sort of minimally entering in and saying you have to discover things for yourself. And my friend said, it's like I'm a golfer and I come in with a slice and the professional says, well, you need to discover for yourself how to cure the slice. This guy doesn't want that. He wants the professional to tell him what to do to cure the slice. And so I think there are things you can engage with without laying a trip, your trip, on the other person. But you can make suggestions and get them to look and question in ways they haven't before. And I, I pretty much engage p people, but I also encourage them to take at least a few minutes here and there of silence and see what the medicine is trying to teach them. Mm. I don't let people stay silent for a real long time because then they're avoiding using the medicine to deal with the issues of their actual life. Yeah. So uh, is learning how to do that skillfully, is that something that you develop over time? And, and did you make mistakes early on? I always make mistakes. Um, sure, I still make them. Hopefully I learn from them. And um, I think what the nature of the relationship between the person who's being the guide or supervisor, whatever you want to call them, the nature of the relationship with the, with the one who takes the medicine is, could be different in different cases. And I kind of like the idea of friendship and exploring things together as friends. And it's not possible with everybody, but it's possible with many. Mm. Yeah. Are you encouraged by the current research and development of MDMA as a therapeutic modality as part of the, the medical system? Oh, I think it's a superb tool. Well, how well it's used depends on how far the person who's guiding has gone in him or herself. Hmm. Well, that's something that definitely comes up in some of the trainings that I've done. Uh, the importance of the uh, facilitator or helpful friend, whatever we want to counselor, whatever we want to call ourselves, in being attuned to our own inner state as we're engaging with the other person and, and understanding um, our own motivations 
that might be there when we're provoking an inquiry or pointing someone towards something. And Oh, yeah. There's always the possibility that I can confuse you with me. Right. Yeah, so you could potentially be seeing something in the other person that's really more about you. A way of telling is how, how much it bothers you. I notice whenever I get really bothered by something I'm seeing, then I know confusion has arrived. Yeah, and it's more about you than it is about that person. To the extent that I'm bothered. Yeah. <laughs> so the more the other person's behavior or response is bothering you, the more likely it's pointing to something internal. Yeah, because, I mean, what's my attitude towards mistakes? Are we allowed, does a little girl learning to walk get to fall down as much as she needs to? That's falling down when you're learning to walk is a mistake that you make in your body balance and you fall and you, you don't consider it a bad thing by making the mistake over and over again. You gradually learn to gain your balance. Yeah, and we should afford ourselves the same opportunity to make mistakes uh, and use them as opportunities to learn. Many people are very harsh with themselves when they make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And harsh with each other in relationship, outside of a, a formal therapeutic context, uh, this often shows up in our relationships. I've noticed it in my own relationship for sure. Are there, you talked to, you know, when you're talking to Debbie and I, you talked about using structures when yeah. we're relating to each other and how that can be really helpful in navigating some uh, of the more challenging conversations. Oh, yeah, especially around defensiveness. Yeah. Most people, if their partner says, I'm, I was really upset with you when you did this or said that. Most people automatically will get defensive when they hear that. The defensiveness can be self-justification and it can be attack. What, what do you mean? You do it too. Or it can be denial. I, don't, I didn't do it. Or it could be withdrawal. I don't have to listen to this. Or it could be emotional meltdown. And in all cases, Whoever's getting defensive can't possibly hear the reality of, the, of their partner. And that's usually what happens is people get defensive and it's a breeding ground for resentment. And it requires, I think, a structure to get past that. If we simply say, hey, let's try not to be so defensive with each other, you can see how far that'll go. <laughs> so what's an example of a helpful structure well, we, we use what we call open-hearted listening. Let, let, let me see if I can give an example. Mm -hmm. we're, we're partners. My car is being fixed, so I borrow your car. I have to get home for a 5 o'clock conference call, which is important. The traffic is running heavy. I didn't have time to put gas in the car, and I just bring it home almost empty and just make my call. Then the next day you notice that and you get really upset with me for being rude and bringing home the car with almost no gas. And um, my tendency is to defend myself. 
I said, come on, cut me some slack. I was late, the traffic was heavy. Don't you ever make mistakes? I'm really, I said I was sorry, you know, that sort of thing. But really what's needed is for me to, to show that your feeling ups, upset makes sense to me. So I might say, I can see why you're upset with me when I brought home the car almost empty. You have one more thing to worry about now. Will you even make it to a gas station and you have to allow extra time? And it just must have felt kind of rude that the one time I borrow your car, I don't even take the trouble to put some gas in it when I return it. I can see why you're upset. That would be validating your feeling. And that's what we need to do for each other when one of us is upset, is to validate each other's feeling. And most of the time, we won't because the tendency to get defensive is so great. So a structure like open-hearted listening forces people on request to validate their partner, whether they like to or not. And the only way this structure works is to agree to do it whether you feel like it or not, because you often won't feel like it. And if you can absolutely validate each other's feelings on request, then you know you'll be in a relationship where both people get heard when they're bothered and can count on being heard. And that really ups the level considerably. Mm. Yeah, so the structure is really this agreement that um, when you come to me with, with a problem, with an issue, something I'm upset about, is I've made the agreement that I'm going to hear you out. And you talked uh, earlier about this idea of making sure that the first thing you do is join, join the person. And so... I don't want to get confused here. We're talking about two things. One is in an open-hearted conversation, uh-huh. going back and forth. You join first, join first. each time. Um, the other one, one person is going to validate the other's feelings. It's similar to joining, where I show you that when I put myself in your place, your feeling makes sense to me. Right. And that's, that's what validation is. And if we have an agreement that when one of us asks for validation, the other will give it. It changes your relationship beyond anything I could describe. Hmm. And just to naturalize this, you don't necessarily, before you talk about what's going on, do you, do you recommend that people say, look, I need you to validate this first, or is it just uh, implied based on a prior discussion that you've had, that I'm going to hear you out, whatever it is, and try to understand your perspective? Well, if I've told you, if I've brought up a topic... And every time I've brought it up, you've gotten defensive and I feel unheard. Then I'm, the next time I'm going to come to you and with our agreement, say, I'd like you to validate this feeling. Right, so you can reiterate the agreement before you bring the topic to the table. You can. Yeah. The, the point is, it feels like a denial of freedom and it's actually the exact opposite. It's real freedom to be able to know that your feelings will be validated no matter what. Mm. Of course, then you have to be willing to do it for your partner. Right, so then is the next step then to hear out the other partner and do a a back and forth with that? And it's best not to do it right away. Mm. We have a 24-hour policy about coming back on the same topic. Yeah. 
So is it enough just to hear the other person out and to validate their experience? To really validate is to put yourself in their place. Say, it must feel to you as if I don't care about how you're feeling since it's not the first time I've done this and you've asked me to not do it. It must feel like I don't respect your wishes or hold them in very high, you know. You say things that the other person didn't say to give them the sense that you really have put yourself in their place and can feel into what it must feel like to them. And if they feel like you really got it, it makes it a lot easier for them to release negativity. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking about instances where I think maybe someone has attempted to do this, but in a in a kind of Rogerian way, they've just repeated back exactly what I've said, and for me, it never um, it never penetrated. I never felt that it was like fully authentic. That they I hear, they'll say, I hear that when I do this, you get angry. Yeah, that's not validation. That's mirroring. Yeah, mirroring is I can see why you would be angry when I do this because. Yeah. So really uh, stepping into that other that person's shoes and then out of that is going to come some authentic sharing about how it would make you feel. And, and sometimes um, people just say, oh, that must feel really sad when I, I'm not emotionally available for long stretches of time. And the partner will say, I hear the words, but I don't feel it. I don't feel any feeling behind it, so I don't feel validated. Yeah. And some people have to learn to connect it with their feelings. Yeah. Now I've experienced that where it just hasn't felt like, um, yeah, that person's actually with me empathizing. It just feels like a kind of technique that they're employing. And like, I can see how you'd feel that way when I do this. And then like, they're just leaving you with that feeling or something. Like, okay, yeah. now deal with it. <laughs> it must feel very sad to have your child run over by a drunk driver. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, very sad indeed. It yeah. must feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, and there's like a detachment there. Like, it must feel that way. Not like, man, I'm really feeling it now when I'm, when I'm joining with you or empathizing with you. Well, it must might be some ways people's way of saying, here's what I got when I tried putting my head there. Yeah. Um, I think the real thing is you can tell when when a person is really feeling and when they're not. And you can also tell when a person is doing the best they're able to. Mm. So you can't ask the impossible from people who aren't used to clomping around in the world of feelings. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, seem, that feels really useful to me, um, what you've described there. And I like the differentiation between mirroring and uh, validating. Mirroring has very little use. Yeah. It's just, it's just something you get people to stop interfering with their thoughts and to listen a little better. But mirroring doesn't really show that you've listened. It just means you've heard the words. Hmm. This means listening emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, and allowing it to resonate with you emotionally on a deeper level. And you can't do that if you're defending yourself. Yeah. So that would be the main structure. We have another structure that might interest you, yeah. which is 
We consider our work life together like a work of art that takes place over time like a piece of music. And it has harmony and it has disharmony. And what we're really interested in is upping the bar for how respectfully we talk to each other. So that we're trying to stamp out moments of unconscious disrespect, like I go and the stove's gone out, and I say to Martha, you let the stove go out again. And nobody likes to be talked to that way. Mm -hmm. So when we speak in a disrespectful tone to each other, we have a structure where the person who felt disrespected says, would you run that by again? Mm. As if you're learning a musical composition, and you play the B-flat, and it's really a B. So I would say, oops, the teacher would say, oops, be natural. So you go back before the mistake, you play through the passage again, this time with the right note. And that makes it much more likely that you'll play the right note afterwards if you play it again. So it's good to correct mistakes. And if I speak to Martha in a tone that feels disrespectful, I will consider it a mistake. I'm into being corrected. So she said, She says, would you run that by again? Gives you another shot at it. And then I get a chance to correct the mistake. And I say, my love, let's try to keep an eye on the stove so it doesn't go out so much, okay? Mm. Something like, you know, just with a little more love. Yeah, I love the compassion in that, like giving your partner the opportunity to take another try at it. Because um, often I find in my relationship stuff will come out of my mouth and immediately, you know, want to take, I want to take it back and, and want to do it again. Um, but if the other person's already in reactive mode, I don't get that opportunity to fix the mistake. Well, actually, you let them have their reaction. Yeah. And then you said, you know, I felt the same way. I would regret it the instant I said it. If I were to say it over again, I would say, so. Yeah. And if you don't, actually correct the mistake with something else, then you're likely to keep making it. Yeah. And I consider anything that doesn't come across respectful to Martha as a mistake. Yeah, so you think that um, if, we, if we do it over, we'll kind of retrain ourselves to speak more respectfully over time? Yeah, oh, like, absolutely, I know that. Yeah. I find a lot of the things most of the things that used to just, I would just blurt them out. I felt like I should belong to Blurters Anonymous. And <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that I always say hurtful things when I'm blurting. Mm. So I catch stuff now more and more of the time before it comes out my lips and choose not to say it. Yeah. That's great. And it just feels like that that would create a kind of um, environment of, uh, of humility in some way, like to be able to admit that you've just made a mistake and to ask to do it over. Um, it just seems like a much more loving environment. Well, I ask myself, why do I feel bad if my partner points out my mistake? And it's, I think it's because they pointed out my mistake, but the real truth of the matter is I feel bad because I feel 
I'm not allowed to make mistakes. And that's the way I can prove my worthiness to the me who judges me for being unworthy. And the more I judge myself, the more defensive I'm going to be about my mistakes. Whereas if I'm not judging myself, I say, oh boy, I just blew it. I was just thinking about me and not about you at all. I'm sorry. And I'm just willing to admit my mistakes and not make a big deal out of them. And I see a lot more of them. Mm. Seems to me that this is something that a lot of us learn <clears throat> when we're young. Um, is that, you know, we're not allowed to make mistakes often. Uh, so d what kind of value do you put in going back and, and making the connection to early childhood experience and where some of these patterns were developed? Well, I see the belief in me that I'm not allowed to make mistakes, let's say. And clearly, the feeling around being bad for making it is so great that the, that the feeling influenced my emotions. And I see it came from childhood where I was given that message. The truth is, when I look with any objectivity, I see that's a ridiculous notion to hold and I don't support it anymore. I want my child to feel free to make all the mistakes they need to and learn from them. And I want to be this, it to be the same for me. So my approach to it is, I don't care how it got there, I'm gonna stop supporting that. I'm gonna to try to find out when it's there. And when, it, when I see it there, I'm gonna remind myself that that's last year's trip. It's no longer my reality. I don't support that. Yeah, I love that. So we don't have to dwell too much on the origins of the belief. We just recognize where it's showing up in our life currently and choose not to give it any more power. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I absolutely don't want to define myself as a victim of childhood anything. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. So these you call them structures, but they're they're agreements in some way, and yeah, they point to an approach uh, when having meaningful conversation with our partner about potentially tricky issues that have been uh, triggering in the past, right? So recognizing that and saying, okay, we need a little help and support here when we talk about these things. So we use a structure. Yeah. I love that. And so do you have a number of those that you can apply? We have open-hearted listening, which is one person hears the other and validates them. Open-hearted conversation is harder. You join with what your partner said each time. You join with them before you say your own piece. And that's, that's a little more tricky, back and forth. We have run that by again to sweeten up the emotional climate in the home. If we, let's say, we find ourselves talking negatively about things, we have a structure where we say nothing negative about any person or situation all day long. Mm. And if we do, our partner holds up a finger. Um, another is spending a good part of a day with partner and not gossiping, not talking about other people. That's an interesting structure. Mm. You mentioned one yesterday called, I believe it was the Day of Grace. Oh, that's my favorite. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Sure. I think we go into an unloving state much more often than we realize. 
And so this one is called Giving Your Partner a Day of Grace. It goes one way. Although I could give Martha one on Saturday and she give me one on Sunday. It means that I commit that my partner is going to feel my love when they're with me without interruption. And if they aren't feeling my love, they can say to me, I'm not feeling your love right now. And I have to get back to a place where they're going to feel it. No excuses allowed. So it's really hard to do sometimes, especially if your buttons get pushed. But it, you have to take it really seriously. And it has taught me so much about love and how it's expressed and how it's not expressed. And I, I think to take your stand that love is stronger than fear mm. is very useful. Do you have any tips for people when they're finding it hard to connect to love? I would say when you're having, finding it hard to connect to love, there's a halfway place on the mountain which you can stop, and that is connect to, I am willing to experience love here, and I don't know how. Mm. But I'm willing to experience it. And I can sometimes ask for help from my own deeper wisdom. I know there's another way of looking at this where my heart could open. I'm really wanting my heart to open. Please help. Mm. I love that. There's a humility in that too. Yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons why I initially got interested in your work is that a f mutual friend of ours had spent some time with you and said, hey, you might want to check out this couple, Don and Martha. And when I went to your website, one of the first things I saw was the heart of relationship. And my teachers always called what they did the heart of yoga. So there's an immediate resonance there, and you know I've always felt that my relationship with Debbie is the deepest spiritual practice that I've been uh, undergoing, and I know that you you share that too. And I wonder if you could talk about that because I think a lot of times um, in the spirituality world, self development world, it is so uh, individually focused, and it is on personal development and self development. Can you talk about relationship as a as a uh, kind of container for personal growth? Oh, sure. When I was in Alaska, um, I spent several years alone living in a cabin, doing very little, and just looking at myself and trying to get to the bottom of the, what was going on in my consciousness. And um, there wasn't very much that was happening to me of a disturbing or challenging nature. So I learned about myself in the way I learned. Then I met Martha, and we ended up in a cabin together doing that same sort of thing. But now it was in relation with each other as well as the other. And I found that was much more challenging, having a partner there and dealing with the messiness of daily life and all the things that come up. Boy, partners... Um, will trigger in you all kinds of feelings that you didn't know you had. You find out your ego isn't so nice. It's just as unnice as everyone else's. And that you have less and less justification for feeling superior to anybody. And it's humbling. And I think that male teachers who actually let in a woman as an equal would co perhaps come across 
differently as teachers than ones who stay above and relate from on high. Mm. Yeah, and going back to Krishnamurti, that's kind of been one of the things that uh, has stopped me from fully accepting him as a teacher is that although he he talked a lot about uh, questioning all authorities, he himself often came across as an authority. You know, that's the way that I take him in is that there's yet another man up on stage who's telling us uh, Where it's at. how to be. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes certain things push my buttons and sometimes for some reason they don't. I can see Krishnamurti doing that and saying, yeah, he's telling us where it's at and that's not what I'm wanting. So everything he says, I'll hold up to the light and see if I accept it or not. Yeah. And I'm not going to allow him to become an authority. If he th thinks he's where it's at, then maybe he's blind in some areas, but still has something to teach. Yeah, for sure. But I guess like <clears throat> where I go with that is I'm always wondering about these kind of lone male teachers, you know, okay, well, show us what you're like in relationship. Like, I want to talk to your wife about how enlightened you are. Yeah, yeah. well, um, I know completely what you're saying. And I think you can tell wh whether people know how to get along with their people that close. If a person is espousing grand principles for the planet and doesn't apply them up close, in his or her life, I don't think too much of the grandness of the principles. You're saying this, I think we're saying the same thing. It's got to manifest in your real daily life. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about the way you and Martha, you work together, and you were telling me earlier that when you do uh, retreats and workshops, that you talk a lot about your own uh, personal difficulties that you guys have had. Sure. One time on a Friday afternoon, I was helping her in the kitchen, preparing food for the workshop. We got in a big fight, and I yelled out, I'm going to call up all these people and tell them not to come because this shit doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Did she ask you if you wanted to run that by again? <laughs> well, I, I think we might have both burst into laughter, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, but... Like what you're saying is that it does work, but um, I, like what I what I love too is uh, I get the sense from you. You know, you guys have been together 44 years. You've been on a spiritual path for longer than that, and yet you find there's still room for, let's say, improvement. Oh, good God! Imagine you're a really first-rate pianist, and your hand-eye coordination and finger dexterity hasn't suffered. You're just going to get better and better if you really care and listen to yourself and, you know, make little nuanced changes in the way you play as time goes on. You'll just play better. An artist will become better if he pays attention and a musician. And, and the same thing is true with the art of relationship. I learn all these subtleties, ways I can help Martha feel just safer and more comfortable in our daily life together and still maintain my integrity mm -hmm. yeah there's something about that that affirms uh, an unlimited potential for growth and refinement uh, that I, I really love because I think that that's what the world is it's it's unlimited in its potential for 
development and refinement and uh, like beautification or something. Yeah, it's not a the relationship isn't a stagnant thing that we've decided has has made it now so we can relax. The relationship is a um, always a vivid area of learning and there's always something that one could do better. And do you believe in the concept of enlightenment that at some point we could be finished? Well, I, I for one thing, not being enlightened, I don't really know. <laughs> but I do have a sense that there is something that a person could see and that if that person saw it completely, the, the grounds for all their fear would be gone and there wouldn't have to be a, a... I still think a person can improve technique and just, you know, like an enlightened painter, I think, could still get better mm. at painting, but not at being a person. Yeah. So even if... Um someone is quote-unquote spiritually enlightened, that there's still a lot of opportunity in how that expresses through their relating to others. Yeah. Well, I think we've seen that with a number of teachers, too, where they've had some incredibly deep spiritual insight, but um, there's still room for improvement in their relationships. Yeah. Or maybe one day one will not get cancer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you've written two books so far and I know that you're working on a third and so even at the young age of 81 you're still developing your ideas and uh, you have more to say and so what's uh, what's kind of fresh for you now what are you working on well someone asked me what what are my edges what are my frontiers these days at 81 I would say death really facing and confronting death at a level that makes it much more real than it used to be because it was so far in the future. And I, my, what I come to feel is that if it's safe to die, the whole thing is safe. Everything that happens between now and then is also safe. And if it's not safe to die, then nothing is safe. And I can't just do this by saying, oh, I feel okay with death because a lot of fear of death people don't acknowledge to themselves and it's unconscious. But I do think one key is to say, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm afraid of what so-and-so thinks of me. Doesn't ring true. Mm. You think that they're always related? I think that if I have fears like that, that underneath it all is the fear of death. And if I were really not afraid of death, then none of that stuff would be fearsome to me. Right, so the way that I interpret that is if I'm afraid of if someone's accepting me or not, um, that it kind of goes back to this kind of primal fear of rejection by the tribe, and if I'm left on my own, that I'm not going to survive. And so that's how it connects to the fear of death? Is nope, that's no? not how I see it. Okay. I see it. It's the fear of I am not. And if someone comes and smiles at you and says, oh, you really helped me a lot, I really appreciate you. They're saying, you are. And so the ego swells up with pride. It's been a, I win in the battle of 
the me versus the not me. I've just won a major battle and I feel more expanded. And when someone says, boy, you did a lousy job on such and such and it's something you care about, then you feel they're saying to you, you are not. And it's, it's like, it's, a, it's really a stage closer to death. And you, what you're really afraid of is that you suspect that you're bad. And when they say you're bad, it sort of exacerbates the already existing feeling of being unworthy. And, and I think in order to really deal with someone saying you're bad and not be affected by it negatively, you have to be free of self-judgment. And I think that's why we always seem to be afraid of other people judging us. But I think what we're really afraid of is our own self-judgment. Mm. Okay, so how does that connect to the fear of death? What do you think is behind that fear of death? I think the, f the fundamental fear is the body will, this body will die. And since I'm the center, the ego is speaking now. The ego is the me that I think that I am the one who gets insulted and hurt and feels angry or upset when people don't like me or don't appreciate me or approve of me. And I think that that part is really afraid that if the body dies, the life that goes on after this body dies is not me. And so it's not consoling to know that life goes on. I believe as the center of the universe that that's the end. There will be nothing and that nothingness will go on and on for how long? Only forever. And I think when the mind tries to go there, you can sometimes get a little hint of how horrible that prospect is. Hmm. I've, I've thought about this in terms of working with people who are, let's say, uh, exploring ayahuasca or other psychedelics one of the things that can happen in those experiences is the ego dissolution and uh, entering into what people have described as a void. And that can often be a really terrifying experience for people. And my feeling has been that if we can have an experience of ourselves beyond the ego before we go into a psychedelic experience, that can give us a, a context for the ego dissolution that might come that will help us uh, be more accepting of it. And less if, we're fortunate, if we're fortunate enough to have that experience, I agree it could be very helpful. I think that what happens when there's a void and people are terrified is they, they've only seen part of the truth. They've seen that they're not the ego and that leaves a void, but they didn't see who they really were instead. Yeah. And when I had that experience, it's even misleading to say I had, but you know what I mean. Yeah. When I had that experience, there was a sense that who I was was life with a capital L. The one life that we all share, and that's me. It's the self with the capital S. And I think if you, if you see that, then there's no more terror of void. Yeah, it's more of a merging with L, with big L life. That's mean. I am it. I'm not a shape or a form, so I never die. I just change shape. Yeah. Yeah, it really shifts the experience from one of uh, terror of total annihilation to one of 
Complete uh, lack of fear. Yeah, like an orgasmic uh, merging with wholeness. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about if you're lucky enough to uh, have that experience. Um, but I found that there are ways that can help me get there, like get out of my head, quiet my thoughts. And so I, I really love yoga as a technology that helps kind of create the conditions in which that's more likely to happen, this connection with a uh, deeper essence. I can look at my total diet and be knowledgeable about which forms of nourishment, such as yoga and meditation, taking slow walk in nature, um, sitting by a stream. Uh, certain forms of nourishment really contribute to a state of consciousness that's more likely to be present. Mm. And what kind of uh, daily practices have you found have been helpful? I know you've mentioned to me that you've done yoga for quite some time. Um, about... Uh, what have you found to be most helpful? Well, meditation. Or I could say meditation being when I'm quiet and interested in the meditative state. And then realizing the meditative state is not limited to when I'm sitting cross-legged, but available any moment of now. So, but what I found in being quiet and doing it, I learned a lot. So meditation is one. Of course, yoga has helped me play, learn about playing my edges and about being comfortable with discomfort and, and um, doing a dance between control and surrender. And um, I think being a father and being a husband and trying to do it well has really taught me a lot in different, different ways. And sacred medicines have done their share to teach me. And those have been my biggest teachers. Mm. Yeah. So the new book, um, what's it going to be called? Do you have a title for it yet? Um, the 50 pound weight loss three day diet total orgasm diet <laughs> I think that's going to fly off the shelves <laughs> <laughs> no I don't know I, I, don't, I haven't thought about it. I, I even pretend to myself that I'm just enjoying writing and I'm not writing a book uh. so to the extent that I succeed I feel less pressure on myself yeah we're not when I started writing my book that I'm completing now, I, I asked some of my mentors for advice on how to write because it was just so uh, kind of overwhelming. It's such a daunting task for me to think in terms of a book more than just like an article or blog post or something. It was definitely the biggest thing I'd ever taken on. And I felt quite overwhelmed at the beginning. Um, and some great advice I got from my yoga teacher was just write for the pleasure of it for 10 or 15 minutes. And if it turns into more than accept that but it was very much about this taking the pressure off yourself take the pressure off yourself in other words I had that when I was building a cabin and I when I thought of all the countless things that I needed to do before the cabin was built I would get overwhelmed and sort of uncomfortable and then what I realized was I'm cutting this log right now just focus on cutting it the best I can and just do one thing at a time and I, I think it was the same principle. Yeah. Yeah. 
Is there anything else that you wanted to leave with people to consider or inform them about? Well, my two books are called Learning to Love and The Uncharted Journey, as Christopher Hitchens said, available at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's true. Um, we have a webpage called Awakening Together, and we counsel individuals and couples privately from an hour to several days and give couples weekends, private retreats and retreats for groups of couples. And um, we consider intimate partnership as an art that's really worth learning how to do well. Mm. So you'll actually host a couple here at your place in Vermont and work with them over a number of days? Over Friday night to Sunday at 5. Mm. We're giving one this October 4th, 6th. Okay. And I know that you guys, for a number of years, have been spending your winters in California. And are you also doing open retreats there? Oh, yes. Yeah, you can probably our website would be a way of finding out what's what we're doing. Yeah. We're still doing these group retreats, but not as many as before. Well, thanks a lot for sharing with me and my audience. I really appreciate you spending the time, and it's just been uh, really nourishing and illuminating for me to be here this weekend. Well, you're, you're so welcome. It's been a pleasure being with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or sharing it on social media. If you're looking for support on your medicine path, you can become a Patreon subscriber and gain access to hours of yoga practice resources, podcast extras, and a lot more. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. And if you'd like more personal support, you can book an online session with me at medicinepathhealingarts.com. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.